0: Everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank, I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you've decided to join us this weekend. I know that you've taken time out of your busy weekend, Super Bowl weekend, um, to uh, join us, and I'm glad you have. My name is Frank, and I'm one of the pastors. um, we're all here today because we love Jesus, and uh, he's changed our lives. And for many of us, we didn't really understand that when life first started, and most of us had to figure out how to crash our lives before we realized we needed help. And then we found that when we finally really started seeking with our heart, we found a very real God. And it's crazy. I wouldn't have believed it if it hadn't happened to me. And so we come here every week to learn more, to share more, to encourage each other, And our church is a little unique because my goal as a a pastor is to equip the saints for ministry. What I mean by that is I don't try to get you to invite everybody you know to come here. What I want to do is grow you, help you grow to the point that you're so contagious wherever you go that people are drawn to you because they see Jesus in you. And then if they want to come here, that's great. But we're all on mission. And we're on mission right now in a way we've never had to be on mission before. And this is going to be another one of those sermons like last week. So thank you for coming back. Um, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, say that. Um, last week, if you missed it, I'll encourage you to go back and watch it online as soon as I post it. Um, we're a little behind. Last week, we talked about prioritizing our time with Jesus. And we looked at this scripture out of Galatians. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. And Paul is telling the Galatians, you can tell by looking at somebody, you can tell by seeing their lives, whether they're full of the Spirit. What he's talking about here is contrasting false teachers, false prophets, false believers from the real deal. And he said the real deal, you know they've been with Jesus because you see him in them. You see love and joy and Those things. Jesus said it this way, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now God promises those who follow him, those who spend time with him, those who prioritize their time alone with him will grow and manifest spiritual fruit. The roots we develop. the the ties we have to Jesus and the frequency and the duration of time we stay connected to him will determine how juicy our fruit really is. No one can develop spiritual fruit for you and nobody can give it to you except Jesus and the Holy Spirit. As his spirit flows through us, as we become rooted in him, his fruit is manifested in us. So obviously, it's important if we want lives full of love and joy and peace and patience and all the others, we have to decide to prioritize our time alone with God, surrendered and submitted to Jesus. And as we process with Jesus, something supernatural happens. Something happens within us. It's not that we go out and make ourselves more loving. It happens within us. And today, we're going to look at the most important change that happens. When you're alone in the sanctuary with God. If you can grasp what God has asked me to teach you today, it will change your life, I guarantee it. What happens to us when we're in the sanctuary, something happens that changes everything. We're going to look at some images that were given to us by a psalmist. We're going to see what is perhaps the greatest benefit of being alone with Jesus. In fact, this one thing changes everything. It is the secret, the magic bullet, if you will, that allows you to not only get through the circumstances of your life, to actually thrive in the midst of them, no matter what circumstance you're faced with. Last week, we spoke of a tree that has deep roots. It can weather a drought. It can not only survive, it thrives in droughts. It can produce fruit. And I said some things that offended some people. So I thought I would continue that trend this week. Sometimes we have to put our seats in the upright position and put on our seat belts because God's word is convicting. This week, there's something only found in the sanctuary. It'll allow us not only to survive the circumstances of our life, but in the midst of chaos, in the midst of challenges, in the midst of despair and crisis, we will find within us a love, a joy, a peace, a patience, a kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control that we don't know where it came from because it came straight from the throne of God into your life for moments such as this. In fact, when you see someone facing difficult challenges and demonstrating these characteristics in their life in the midst of chaos, I guarantee you, you know they've been alone with Jesus. And the first thing he changed was them. When you're in the midst of difficult circumstances, the first thing God's going to change is you. He's not going to change your circumstance until he changes you. The only place we can receive what God has for us is surrendered to Jesus. So many of us rush off to Facebook. We rush off to friends. We go talk to everybody. And we haven't even sat down and talked to God about the thing that he alone can fix. So what does Jesus do in that quiet time that is so powerful? We're going to discover it together today. I read a letter once of a young girl who went off to college and decided she needed to email her parents, so let me read it to you, and it'll help you see where we're headed today. Since I left for college, I've been remiss in emailing you. I've been too busy for Facebook, and my phone cell phone keypad won't text anymore, so I thought writing a letter would be best. I'll bring you up to date now before you read on. Please sit down. Well, then I'm getting along pretty well now. The skull fracture and the concussion I got when I jumped out of the window of my apartment when it caught on fire shortly after my arrival here is pretty well healed now. I only spent two weeks in the hospital and now I can see almost normally and only get those sick headaches once a day. Fortunately, the fire in the apartment and my jump was witnessed by an attendant at the gas station near my place. And he was the one who called the fire department and the ambulance. He also invited me and visited me in the hospital, and since I had nowhere to live, he invited me to move in with him. He was kind enough to invite me to share his apartment. It's a really small basement room, but it's cute. He's a cool guy, and we've fallen deeply in love, and we're planning on getting married. (laughs) He gave me a ring, but we had to pawn it to buy food and some other things he requires on a daily basis. His job at the gas station didn't last. They actually do drug testing there. We haven't yet had the exact date of our marriage yet, but it'll be before my pregnancy begins to show. Yes, mother and dad, I am pregnant. I know how much you're looking forward to being grandparents, and I know you will welcome the babies. Oh, yes, I forgot to tell you not twins, triplets. Instant family. Can you believe it? All this adult stuff, and I'm not even 19 yet. I'm so mature. The reason for the delay in our marriage is that my boyfriend has a minor infection, which prevents us from passing our premarital blood tests, and I carelessly caught it from him. Turns out my pregnancy has made the doctors test me. Fortunate, right? Now that I've brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no apartment fire. I did not have a concussion or a skull fracture, I went in the hospital, there is no gas attendant, there is no guy, I'm not starving, I'm not pregnant, no triplets, I'm not engaged, and I'm not infected. However, I did get a D in American history, and I wanted you to see those grades in their proper perspective. The first thing that changes when we're alone with Jesus is our perspective. Changing our perspective changes everything. Getting us off of our agenda and our worldview and onto his changes everything about everything you experience on this earth. We will see our lives through lenses. All meaning comes from perspective. Everything is framed by context. In order to understand the events of our lives, we have to have the right context Perspective is that combination of what you're looking at, but also where you're looking from. It's so easy for us to get out of touch with what's real. When we lose our perspective of reality, we can say and do some crazy things. We need to be very aware of our perspective. When we don't understand what's going on around us, when we get frustrated and things don't make sense, we deceive ourselves that we believe we know everything we're supposed to know about that circumstance. Can I just tell you, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And you and I have a very limited perspective It's like you're stuck in traffic. A few months ago, our daughter was driving home to Nashville on Christmas Eve. 30 miles outside of Nashville, the freeway became a parking lot. She was packed there for hours. No one was moving. There's nowhere to go. From her perspective, all she could see was cars full of frustrated people and full bladders and empty stomachs and diminishing gas tanks. You've probably been in those kind of traffic jams. There's absolutely nothing you can do. The situation's not going to change. You can honk your horn, and many do. You can get out of your car, you can walk the median, you can look up the street, you can be impatient. It doesn't change anything. You might even try to drive on the median. If that's you, do not tell me that that's what you do. The longer that you're in that situation, the limited perspective you keep looking through, the more frustrated and angry you become. Kylie did what many of us would do. We look at our situation and we realize that we don't know what we don't know. We need a new perspective. We need someone who knows more than we do, so she calls her dad. And she doesn't want my advice. She wants me to look on the internet and see what's going on. She needs a different perspective. And after a few moments alone with her, I could help her see that there'd been a horrible accident, that the freeway was closed because of debris and emergency vehicles, that she was able to thank God she'd just not been a few minutes ahead of where she was and that there were people who needed to pray on this Christmas Eve. We didn't know it at the time, but it was the same night that the guy blew up the RV in downtown Nashville, just steps outside where she was the manager of a restaurant not too long ago. We were able to count her blessings. She had her food, her gas tank was full, her phone was fully charged. She learned a new purpose for Ziploc bags. On her, and she was not at this moment in a helicopter on her way to a trauma center. Notice that in this case and many others, the situation, the problem does not change. What changes is our perspective. When we get additional information, we can see things with fresh eyes. And things begin to change because our perspective has changed. We're going to look today at a psalm written by Asaph, He's a worship leader in the temple. He's a man of God. We're going to be in Psalm 73. He wrote 12 psalms, but this one in particular is my favorite. Asaph struggles at times with perspective. He's trying to understand what's going on around him. He looks at his world, and then he looks at God, and there seems to be a disconnect. From his perspective, he's asking God, what is going on in the world? It makes no sense. Many of us could have the same conversation with God today. I love this psalm, and what I love about it is that Asaph is totally honest. He serves in the temple. He's a worship leader, but he doesn't candy coat his feelings. He goes so far to say to God that he envies the wicked. That he allows himself to want what they want. That he wishes he could have it. In fact, he wants it so bad, he's ready to walk away from the temple and walk away from God. His perspective was skewed. Let's look at this psalm because it's going to teach us a critical step towards allowing Jesus to produce spiritual fruit in our lives. The psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw prosperity of the wicked. He looks out at the world and he knows what we know. I know God's good to us. I know that he, in my head, I know God can do nothing good. I know he cares about me. I know that he promises everything he does is good for us. I know in my soul that God is good, but I'm going to get really honest, God. As for me, I almost blew it. I almost lost my foothold. I almost lost my desire to follow God. I almost turned away from him, away from the temple, away from the worship service. I got so frustrated by what I was seeing that I almost walked away. Why? Well, I was envious. I looked around me and I saw arrogant, wicked people living lives against the purposes of God, thumbing their noses at God and prospering. They're doing everything wrong and they're getting rich. From my perspective, this is paying off for them. The word prosperity here in the original language is shalom. It's peace. And it's not limited to money. It's all good. Everything's good. The word means completeness or fulfillment. Have you been there? Have you looked at your world just like Asaph looks at his and asks God, I thought you were supposed to bless the believers. Why do we all struggle with health and finances and relational turmoil while the unbelievers around us seem to enjoy prosperity? Or we could ask it this way, why are the wicked successful? while the righteous suffer. You can feel the emotion of Esau. I know God is good, but from my view, my perspective, these wicked people seem to have it all. I'm struggling and they're prospering. Who who is really being blessed here? This following God stuff isn't paying off for me. Yet I look at them and all I see is shalom. They look happy. They look like they're enjoying the fruits of their bad labor. And Asa says, I almost ditched my faith because of that. And he continues. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They sent their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know is their knowledge in the most high? He's saying, look, i look at these wicked people. They have a peace, a prosperity, a pride. They don't even seem to get sick. It looks like they're protected somehow. They're living life in the fast lane. Everything all the time and they never seem to crash, God. They scoff and they set their voices against the heavens, against you. They mock you, God. Is their knowledge in the most high? Because they seem successful, even God's people turn to them. And they find no fault in them. We keep thinking, God, something's going to happen to them, but it never does. They die a peaceful death at a ripe old age. They seem to get away with it, and they seem bulletproof. We see things that make no sense. Several years ago at a church in Texas, a pastor who loved Jesus and sacrificed everything for the kingdom served his congregation well. He was 34 years old. The church is celebrating baptism. What a great moment to honor God and to worship and celebrate. Everything's good until this 33-year-old pastor reaches out of the water to adjust the microphone. Electrocuted in front of his congregation and killed instantly. God, where are you? That makes no sense. No sense to us. Wicked people prosper, and a young pastor doing your work, getting ready to baptize somebody, you have to look at that and say, God, what in the world is going on? How do you allow that? That's where this psalmist is. The human condition is the same today as it was for Asaph thousands of years ago. Wicked people seem to prosper, and God's people seem to suffer. Asaph is honest here, and he says, God, this is driving me crazy. I'm ready to walk away. It makes no sense. Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Aseth does what we do. He starts the comparison game. The world's wicked are at ease. They're increasing in, in riches. They don't care about morality. They don't care about other people. They use other people. They get rich doing it, and it seems like God does nothing. If there is a God, why do these people get away with it? If I was God, they wouldn't get away with it. Mocking God, but living on his earth, rich, healthy, and carefree? Then Asaph turns to himself. Notice that when we're limited to only our perspective, it almost always leads us to self-pity. Look at the emotion here, all in vain. I've kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence. You know what? I was stupid. It was in vain that I kept my heart clean. I've lived a pure life, God, and I'm suffering right now. Aseth has a limited perspective. I think he's saying, look, I just realized I've been wasting my life. I've done what God asked me to do, and it's not working out. The temple worship leader says, this is all in vain, God. But then Esau says something critically important that we cannot miss. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. If you learn nothing else today, pay attention to what he says here. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, I have all this stuff going on inside of me. I don't know what God's doing. I have a limited perspective. I'm frustrated with God. I'm disappointed with God, but my mouth is shut until God and I work this out. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not emailing my friends. I'm not building a consensus. My mouth is shut until God and I work this out because the problem is never God. It's always my perspective. He says, this is how I felt. These are thoughts that were running through my head. If I had spoken up, I would have misled people. If I had spoken up, I'm a leader. I can't say these things out loud. At this moment, he says, I would have betrayed your children. People are watching me. My perspective was so limited. If I had spoken, I would have discouraged so many people. You know, the worship leader walked out on God. That guy that's been worshiping, he just walked away. I would have turned them against God, he says. Proverbs 18, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. If I could put one thing on the front page of everybody's Facebook account, this is what it would be. Asaph has the wisdom of a leader to keep his mouth shut. When we're processing through things, when we don't yet understand things, when we know we're leading others, we have to recognize we don't know what we don't know. And during that process, we have to keep our mouth shut. I've seen so many leaders, many church leaders, lack this wisdom. They process everything they think out loud. Rather than taking it to God for his perspective, they try to build a consensus among other people as they dump their frustration about God onto those who are supposed to be being led it's so important we all have the wisdom of knowing when to be quiet Asaph is in a struggle with God but because he kept it between God and himself it only affected him and God later we're going to see that all he needed was God's perspective He didn't know what he didn't know. But rather than act like he knew it all, he kept his mouth shut. And later he learns how skewed his perspective was and the damage he would have done had he spoken to others about what he was feeling. He says, man, am I so glad I was stupid enough that I didn't lead people based on my perspective because I would have betrayed generations. And then my favorite verse in this whole passage but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. I can't figure out what's going on. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. In other words, when I was in my own perspective, nothing made sense. I was out there, I'm frustrated, I don't know what's going on, but when I went into the sanctuary of God, all of a sudden he showed me his perspective and I could get it nowhere else. If I had not gone into the sanctuary, and note the critical decision here, I thought to understand this. Too many people aren't trying to understand what God's doing, they're just trying to promote their agenda. I thought I would understand this. In other words, God, if something's going on in my world, and you're sovereign, and you're God, and you've got my best interests at heart, and you tell me that all things work for good to those who know the Lord, you tell me you love me more than I love myself, whatever you've allowed in my life is the best possible thing that could happen to me. And if I'm not seeing that, I have a perspective problem, and I need to understand. You see, because the key to gaining God's wisdom is to recognize that if you don't understand what God is doing, the problem is not with him. If you don't understand what God is doing, the problem is not with him. It's with your perspective and your understanding, and usually it's because you really haven't spent time alone with God. So many of us never understand. We never even try to understand because we're already sure that our perspective is right and we need to speak for God. We never consider that our perspective might be wrong and usually is. The first thing you got to realize when you're in a spiritual jam is you need God's perspective and no one else's. I tried to understand what God was doing, but it was oppressive to me, he says, until, and this is so powerful, I went to the sanctuary of God because I don't know what I don't know. But God does. And my perspective is so limited. I'm down here in a traffic jam. I can't see the bigger picture. I can appreciate my blessings. I can't live in a world that makes no sense to me. I was burdened by what I was seeing. I had a decision to make. Am I going to get bitter or am I going to get better? Just sit on that for a minute. Am I going to get bitter or am I going to get better? Because bitterness comes from my perspective. Betterness comes from God's perspective. My perspective, he says, was leading me to bitterness until I went to the sanctuary of God. When I chose to prioritize my time with God above everything, when I entered the throne room, I began to see the world not from my perspective, but from his. And when I'm sitting with God, looking through the Holy Spirit at the lens that he gives me, everything changes. Paul said this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Go to the place where the Holy Spirit can transform you and there is where you will discern the will of God. The only place our mind can be renewed, the only place we can test and discern the will of God is alone with Jesus in our quiet place. We enter that space bitter and angry and confused and disillusioned with our flawed perspective. We leave that place knowing what is good and acceptable and perfect. We gain the perspective of Jesus and we leave our perspective behind. If I had not gone into the sanctuary, I would not know what I don't know. I'd still be frustrated, I'd still be bitter. I'd be walking away from God. It's in the sanctuary alone with Jesus that I gained perspective. And he says, I discerned their end. God showed me something I wasn't paying attention to. And it changed everything. Translated, God showed me the whole picture. I was focusing on their lives right now. He wanted me to focus on their future. Let's see what he learned. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They don't have it made. They're doomed. They're in the dance band on the Titanic. I can see it now. Sure, their lives here seem carefree, but their eternal destiny is horrible. They may be going through life right now, but they're on a slippery slope. They have no future, and they're headed to ruin. It's all going to be over for them in a moment. They'll be filled with terror. Their punishment is coming. It's all going to fall apart. I didn't see that before. I didn't have an eternal perspective. It wasn't until I came into the sanctuary of God, he says, that he showed me what I did not know. The circumstances are the same, but now my perspective is different. I feel sorry for them. They're going to go to hell. I can see now in the end, all their sins are going to be exposed. They may be cruising through life right now, but one day in a split second, they're going to be standing in front of God. The same God they've been mocking. And it's going to be bad for them. I've been focused, jealously longing for the things that they have, but I don't want that. I should have been in holy horror about their destiny. I should have been caring about their soul. I should have been focused, longing. Instead, I'm longing for the things that they have. I should have been in holy horror. They're living a fantasy that's actually a nightmare. From the sanctuary, I can see they need to be saved. From my flawed perspective on earth, I wanted to be them. But now with God's perspective, there's no way I want to be them. I love what he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God. You see, when we finally stop trying to figure everything out on our own, when we realize that we don't know what we don't know, when we learn to take the things we don't make sense to the only one who can make sense of it, sharing our confusion, sharing our fears, honestly dealing with God from our perspective, and then recognizing that our perspective is simply that, the view of an isolated, ignorant human biped on a spinning planet who has a sin nature, who lived in a fallen state and now has been restored by Jesus Christ, we have no way of having God's perspective unless he shares it with us. We go to God, we pour out our hearts. We begin to develop deep roots, deep roots that lead to spiritual fruit. In that moment when we say, "But, but God, I need to see this situation the way you see it. If you have somebody you're struggling with, I know you're praying for them. I know you're praying for them. Don't bust my bubble. You're praying for them. God, help me see them the way you see them. Because from my perspective, I want to kill them. I want to call them out. Every time I prayed that prayer, God has showed me a scared child in an adult body who's trying to find love and acceptance. We have to get to a point where we say, God, I need to see this situation the way you see it. I know you know, and I know I don't. And I'm gonna to surrender to your view, not mine, no matter what you show me. And in that moment, God begins to show you what you've never seen before. In the sanctuary, our problems get smaller because our God gets bigger. With God's perspective, things on earth here look so wonderful really aren't that great. And the things that seem so bad really aren't that bad. It's in the sanctuary with God where everything starts making sense. Every time you leave the sanctuary of God, you leave your perspective behind on the floor wadded up and discarded. Whatever you walked in with is not the perspective he wants you to leave with. And you walk out with God's perspective on his mission and his purpose. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. God, I was kind of out of control. I was saying terrible things to you, God. I was ignorant because I thought my perspective was the only perspective. I didn't mean to question you, I just lost it. My heart was grieved. My spirit was embattled. I was confused. I've had those conversations with God before. I've been the angriest at God over some of the things that have happened in my life. When I look back at them, they were the best things. God, I'm sorry, I'm just dumb. Then he continues, nevertheless, I'm continually with you and you hold my right hand. God, even though I'm ignorant, even though I questioned you, you still love me. And when I was frustrated and dumping on you, questioning you, you held my hand and you led me through it. And then Asaph turns to worship. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but my God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. Remember the goal I told you when we started this series last week? I said that I wanted us in this series to realize that nothing on this earth will bring us more pleasure than an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where this come from. Who have I in heaven but you? And here is, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. My perspective may fail, but God's perspective will be my strength. And then Asaph finishes this amazing psalm. And he says, Look, all this stuff was bothering me, and you just held me. You didn't rebuke me. You didn't beat me up. You didn't discard me. You didn't challenge me for challenging you. You just held me until I understood. And then you guided me with your perspective. And one day you'll take me away from here to heaven. Who do I have in heaven but you? Often in the past, I've been challenged to think about if you could have all that heaven offers, no death, no disease, no tears, and Jesus wasn't there, would you still want to go? Is your desire to be with Jesus in his arms or to just receive what he can offer you? Do you love Jesus or just what he can give you? Asa says, look, what do I have in heaven but you? You're the only thing in heaven that matters to me. You're the only thing on earth that matters to me. One day I get to see you face to face. We sing a song often that says, the world has nothing for me, I will follow you. Because I need you, Jesus, to come to my rescue. Can you really say that? This world has nothing for me. Do you love him that much? Everywhere you look, you'll see others who have more. More wealth, more health, more whatever. But are you at a point where you say, who cares? I have all I need. I have Jesus. What else could I want? I don't need to covet what other have you see from my new perspective I get to go to the sanctuary I get to experience the things of God I have Jesus he's all I need from David's view in the sanctuary he said at the best the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he leads me beside still water he takes care of me in other words what else could I possibly need I have the Lord he continues but for me it's good to be near God I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I'm going to the sanctuary. When things get difficult in my life, I'm not going on the computer. I'm going to the sanctuary. I need God's perspective. And I'm going to keep my mouth shut until he corrects me. There are two application points from Asaph that we need to pay attention to. One, it's good to stay near God. And then once God gives us his perspective, then and only then is it time to talk to anybody. Let me repeat that. Once God gives you his perspective, then you have something to share. Prior to that, it's your opinion, and it's probably flawed, and you're gonna try to get God to stamp your opinion with his approval, and you haven't even talked to him about it. We are told to share God's perspective with other people. One of the best motivators for evangelism is to come into the presence of God, to shift your paradigm, He says, I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of your works. He chose to go to the sanctuary. When things didn't make sense, I gotta go get God's perspective. I gotta go talk to him about this. I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. I have opinions, but I think they're probably wrong. If I share them right now, I'm gonna be talking for me, not for him. I'm gonna tell of your works. The only perspective I'm ever gonna share is the one I get from God. Because I don't know what I don't know. You see, as Christ followers, we need to be so rooted in Jesus that we speak for him through him. That his Holy Spirit flows through us. And our lives bust out with joy and love and peace and patience. Almost to the point of we're like, where did that come from? That's not me. Yeah, you're right. It came from the throne. The quality of spiritual, of your spiritual fruit in your life is directly related to the time that you spend in the sanctuary surrendered, not just in the sanctuary. I say it all the time. The more you surrender, the more you're transformed. If you go to God trying to get God to do what you want him to do, there's no transformation that happens there. So how do we apply this to our lives? And I want us to remember we don't know what God knows when you look at the situations or challenges in your life, before you go and dump your perspective on others, take your struggle to the sanctuary and ask God to share with you what you did not know. I told you that we were going to look at the Psalms to remind ourselves of why we need to prioritize our time with Jesus. Right now in our nation, many Christ followers are seriously struggling with the direction of our nation. We don't understand why God is allowing those who openly deny and offend Him to prosper. Asaph's perspective is easily ours. But unlike Asaph, we've not taken our struggle with God to God. That's the issue, you know. I see so many people who are freaking out about national events. I don't get it. Full of worry and anger angst and indignation, they don't realize that their issue is not with Joe Biden. It's not with Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris. It's not with Nancy Pelosi. It's not with the Democratic Party. It's not with CNN. It's not with thousands of liberal pundits. If you're lacking peace about what's happening in our nation and our world, you have a problem. And let me share you what your problem is that you're not willing to admit. Your anger, your frustration, your disappointment, your indignation is with God. You're angry at God because he didn't agree with your perspective. He's in total control. He has absolute authority, power, absolute reign. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow. He is sovereign, and he did not do what you wanted him to do. And his choice for our nation was President Biden. Otherwise, he's not sovereign. You're angry at God. He disappointed you. You should be in that quiet place with him dealing with your disappointment, but instead you're firing off your perspective on social media as if you were speaking for him, as if he needs to be defended, as if some cosmic mistake happened that God couldn't fix, but you can. You're trying to stamp your perspective with the authority of God. Now, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be disappointment or concern that the world's turning more and more away from God, but we have to know where to take that perspective Asaph knew that if he spoke to others before gaining God's perspective that he would have betrayed the generation of his children. Instead of calmly guiding others to God and God's will for our nation, we're running around as if we think God's not in control and we somehow need to fix it. It's almost like we're going around behind God going, oh, he didn't mean that. That election, oh, he didn't mean that. Let me clean that up for you. See, it was stolen. It was a problem. God couldn't fix it because man stole it. Really? The sovereign God I know, he nods his head and somebody becomes president. The message we're sending to future generations is that God's not sovereign, he's not in control, and we are not at peace. By speaking our will instead of God's will, we're betraying the generation of children who are watching us. Believers who spent time in the quiet place with God have a peace about what's happening in our nation. We left our perspective on the floor. We walked out with God's perspective and planned for end times. And because of that, we walk out with his peace and his joy and his love and his patience and the fruit of his spirit in our lives for other people to see. It's in the quiet place with God where he reminds us of our true citizenship, our mission he has called us to, and the temporary nature of earthly things, earthly kings, earthly democracies, and earthly presidents. As Christ followers, we should be defended by, offended by what our nation's doing. Not just now, but for a very long time. But those who have God's perspective have peace about it. I took this concern to God many years ago, and I gained his perspective, so let me try to help you share what I've learned in The Quiet Place. Remember that Asaph said, for me, it's good to be near God. It's good to be near God. Here's what God has shared with me. I left my perspective discarded on the floor and I gained his. God is working out his plan that has existed for all of eternity. He is reconciling all men to himself. He's arranging everything in the world to bring the most people possible into a relationship with Jesus. Jesus. God will allow anything in the world to happen if it saves more people for eternity. That's all he cares about. What happens on earth is temporary, transient, and nothing in comparison to all of eternity. Many people have made their nation their God. The military, their strength, the laws, their Bible. Our national interests are now have to be God's directive. Many American Christ followers believe that the U.S. must be worshipped and always existed as God's nation. Many have made their political party their church, their news channel their source of truth, Donald Trump their Messiah, and Facebook their devotional. For many believers, sadly, the American flag is more important than the cross of Jesus, the Pledge of Allegiance more important than their commitment of faith in Jesus, and the Constitution to be guarded as if it were God's true gospel. Whatever Americans want, they think God must want. Yet in the quiet place, you gain God's perspective. Americans have been killing babies since 1961, discarding his design for families, flaunting their sinful desires, worshiping money, selling and degrading women, all the while convincing them that they're free and empowered, promoting sinful choices if they were God's design flaw. And treating his truth as if it's flawed and unimportant. He's bringing about his punishment on a stiff neck and rebellious people called Americans. No one does what we've done with God and does not experience his righteous judgment and wrath. We are totally naive if we think that God's going to continue to bless our nation doing the things that we're doing. In the quiet place we gain his perspective. We're in end times. Can I just tell you that again? There's no mention in Scripture in end times of the United States. There is no mention of a great power from the West or a great eagle that flies in or a bald eagle that stands with Israel. No mention of any nation that stands with Israel. In fact, the Scriptures are absolutely clear. The entire world is going to turn against Israel and God alone will protect His people. As the end time clock ticks down, the American experiment with democracy ticks faster. God's plan is to reconcile all mankind who are willing to Himself, and the U.S. is expendable if necessary to accomplish that goal. So we should expect that God will bring about leaders to accomplish His goals for end times. My perspective I'm disappointed that our nation's where it's at. I'm saddened that the American dream is over. I'm concerned for my children and grandchildren. And truthfully, I'm kind of glad I won't be here 40 years from now to watch it all. But that's my perspective. I left it on the floor of the quiet place. Because in the quiet place, I've discarded my perspective and gains God's. I'm at peace about it all. Because I've been with God. I'm now on his agenda, not mine. I've not spoken out about this yet because I've been wrestling with God in the quiet place. God bringing his judgment on the United States, and we deserve it. Many Christ followers in America need to decide which is more important, their perspective for our nation or God's eternal perspective for all mankind. I want what God wants. I'm sold out to his mission, not mine. His desires, not mine. His plans for us, not mine. You see, my God is in heaven, and he does as he pleases. And that's fine with me. He's given me his perspective. He's gifted me with supernatural peace about what's happening in our lives, in our nation. We need to stop grieving the loss of the American dream and grieve the loss of people for all of eternity. The whole point of end times is to bring a rebellious people into salvation relationship through Jesus, to take away everything in their lives that gets between them and God so that they can finally turn to him. Our world will likely not change. Each day is going to bring us closer to God's judgment, but in the quiet place, we're transformed by the renewal of our minds, and His perspective changes everything. It's in the quiet place where your circumstances don't change, but your perspective does. That's the most important thing that happens. Let's pray. God, I know that often we feel like we have to speak for you and we haven't spoken to you. I know that often we think we know what you're doing, but truthfully it's just our opinion that we've believe you somehow have stamped. God, your word tells us that no mind can comprehend the things that you have, that your ways are higher than our ways, and there's no way we can understand what you're doing if we're not connected to you. That's why you said, apart from you, we can do nothing. So God, help us all to put our world in perspective. Help us to begin praying for the lost. Help us to begin praying for those who are leading our nation in a way we shouldn't go. And yet it's a way that you've deemed necessary. So God, just like the prophets throughout all of history, saw the demise of the people, the punishment and wrath of God coming, we see it too. Help us, God, to care about the people that are headed to an eternal destiny of hell. Help us to set aside our desires and make sure we have yours. God, please draw us to the quiet place. We love you. We thank you. We're so glad you have this all under control. And we ask for your supernatural peace in Jesus' name. Amen.